Bonjour, and welcome to day one of the French Open on No Challenges Remaining. I am Ben Rothenberg, joined by mon ami Tumani Carriol of The Guardian from Angleterre and Espana. Mani, thank you for being here. Hello. um, At some point, you have to give me a title like Reem. I know. I was thinking about that actually before (laughs) you came on. So Reem is Middle East correspondent. I was going to offer you... British correspondent, but I don't think you'd want that. I think you'd want Spanish correspondent. Spanish and sub-Saharan African correspondent. Okay. <laughs> that's where it works. That works. Spanish and sub-Saharan African. Okay, that's good. That's like SSSA. That's good. Correspondent for NCR, Tamana Carriol. Thank you for being on here, representing those groups so well. We are here, though, to talk largely on this episode about the British contingent, uh, who was involved in two of the marquee matches of the day today at the French Open. This was the first day of the French Open, but as I joked right before we were starting, it was more or less the last day of the British French Open with the three main British people talked about this tournament, Joe Conta, Andy Murray, and Dan Evans, if you want to throw him in here, being seated, and the top man, all going out. All to big players, though. None of them, like, that they lost. Is, they went 0 for 3 is not shocking. It's maybe the ways that Conta and Murray went out, a little bit surprising, but we can get into that. Let's talk first about Wawrinka and Murray, which was sort of the circled men's first round match of the tournament. Two three-time Grand Slam champs playing against each other. And this match, well, I think Andy held serve to start, and then it was not close. And then then he got broken three times in a row to lose the first set by a triple break, 6-1, and then lost the next two sets, 6-3 and 6-2, to go down in one of his most lopsided defeats ever. I don't know how many people were expecting Murray to win this match, but I saw a lot of, like, Wawrinka in four type picks. So for Andy to only win five games or six games overall, this I'm guessing this surprised you. It surprised me. The scoreline. Uh, I wouldn't a bit in in a way. I, I didn't think. I mean, for one, Varinka looked quite sharp, but yeah. it's also hard to tell just how sharp he is because of how easy it was. And obviously, no, I I I thought it would be tighter, but then you look at how Murray lost his last two matches to Felix Auger Eliassime in US Open, to Milos Ranić in Cincinnati after two wins. Like He was kind of blown off the court in all of them, and in all of those matches he, he looked quite subdued and calm and wasn't able to kind of fully bring himself his best out. So in that sense, as soon, once it started to unfold, I don't think it was that much of a surprise when you consider how he'd lost previously. And I guess we'll talk more about like why that was the case, but... What what was your sense? What mean? What do you mean in terms of how he lost previously? Finish that thought. Just just, just how he wasn't able to stay with either Ojale Sim or Ranić, and how they kind of just bulldozed him, and it wasn't close at all. And yeah, you know that there's reasons for that. You know, as, as he noted in his press conference, he was I think he was physically he didn't have much at the U.S. Open, but I mean I don't know. I think it's quite notable that those three losses have been so one-sided, and he hasn't been able to do put his impart his game at all and I don't I think why it's it's obviously because he hasn't played so much over the past like 18 months or whatever and you know I think he still needs more to play more matches he still needs to you know find a rhythm again he still needs to figure out kind of what style of play works to hit for him yeah. with his new metal hip and I think there's a lot in the air and so when you get on the court 
against these great players and they start to play well, it can go, things can move quite quickly. Yeah, let's play actually a couple of clips from Andy's press today. Uh, I'll put the answers back to back here. The first question is basically about, I think what you hinted at too, can someone who is always a super grindy, you know, physical, physical player when he was reaching number one in the world, now that he's more physically compromised, can he adapt that style of play to do something else to be more preservation preservation of his physicality uh, and just getting away from his tennis identity? And the second question is about uh, if he can get back to his best tennis. So here are Andy's, here are those two questions and answers. Um, Andy, obviously it's very early stages in terms of playing grand slams again and singles, but with the way you're talking uh, just now, would it be fair to say that you might even have to sort of reevaluate the way you play at the age of what 33, um, you know, against fairly high-ranking opponents over the best of five sets? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's something I have looked at uh, for sure, but it's like, I mean, it's just it's a difficult one because the way that the way that I play, like if you consider like wh when I play my best tennis or when I've played my best tennis, um, you know, I know, I know what that looks like. And, you know, it's not going around blasting balls and serving and volleying and stuff. Um, you know, that, that isn't how I play the game. If I do, let's say, you know, you start serve volleying and returning and coming into the net and things like that. Um, it has to be successful you know otherwise it's get it's getting the balance right you know when when you're when you're out there playing um to totally change the way you play the game is 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 hard um it's hard to do that and even since i came back um from the injury you know like if if you take the matches that i played like in asia for example and then look at antwerp which is where i feel like i played obviously because I won the tournament I would say it but where I played my best tennis like I was hitting my backhand like four or five miles an hour faster there than I was in the Asia trip um you know and I didn't change the way I was playing I just took my backhand on a little bit more and played the same way and it was it was successful so it's more about getting the most out of my you know my game I don't think it's going to be that easy for me to change it at this stage in my career even though it's something I have considered and, and looked at um, but yeah when I play my best tennis that's um, you know being an offensive baseliner and that's what I need to make sure I was doing but like tonight if you serve at 38% and you miss time a bunch of second serve returns <laughs> it's hard to, it's hard to play that way so um, yeah I need to I need to play better to allow me to to play the right way. I think. Andy, when you consider what you just said uh, about the way you're playing, and even had thoughts about changing your game, etc., and I ask this with full respect, do you think you can get back to the best tennis that you've ever played, to those levels? I mean, from from a physical perspective, again, I mean. I, I wouldn't expect to physically be the same as what I was before I had the operation, but in terms of like, you know, ball striking and, um, you know, in terms of my strokes and stuff, I mean, 
I don't see why there's no reason that I shouldn't be able to do that from a technical perspective um, you know and there's been matches that I played since I came back where I hit the ball you know well and there was you know like I mean I know <laughs> I know it wasn't the, <laughs> the, the the best match at times but like you know Zverev was what a couple of points away from winning the US Open and you know I won against him the week beforehand and you know I, I, it's it's, it's going to be difficult for me to play the same level as I did before I mean I was I'm 33 now and I was ranked number one in the world so it's it's difficult with all the issues that I've had um, but yeah I'll, I'll keep going let's let's see let's see what the next few months holds and um, I reckon I won't play a match like that um, between now and the end of the year there was also a, a comment, I guess it was made on Eurosport by Mats Valander, which got some attention as quoted by George Belshaw on Twitter. And I will read this quote. But Valander talking about himself says that, I guess that taking wild cards into his 30s was, quote, the biggest mistake I made in my career. And then he adds, I think Andy Murray needs to stop thinking of himself and start thinking about who he was. Does he have a right to be out there taking wild cards from the young players? My answer to this is, okay. Before I say yes, he has the right to take wild cards away from young players. I will say I the general concept of a champion has an expiration date is true, right? God knows I said this about Leighton Hewitt back you know eight years ago when Leighton Hewitt got a calendar golden slam of wild cards into four slams in the Olympics, like who was was just especially taking up all those Australian reciprocal wild cards which are devoted to a specific group or whatever. Like no, like that was bad of Leighton when he wasn't contending meaningfully anymore and was out to the top 100 for years. But Andy, you know, won a ATP final over Vavrinka less than a year ago. Andy beat Sasha Zverev in Cincinnati, who then went on to make the U.S. Open final and come within a couple points of winning it. So I, you know, that's a positive spin. I don't think that it's at all time for... Andy to be forced into retirement or forced into not taking wild cards. I think that's I think that's very premature. Oh yeah, I, I think that's just a, a silly opinion. I mean, to quote Danny Valverde, I, he said, "I think that's absolutely pathetic from Mats." And I mean, no, I, I I'm actually I'd say I'm actually quite a, a wild card extremist. I you know uh, even if he Murray wasn't performing well, I mean he's a He's a three-time slam champion, a former world number yeah. one, and if he wants to play more, whatever it, it, you know, no nobody is entitled to wild cards, and well, that's you true. know, and particularly, and we we know, I'm sure you, you like agree that particularly at slams and at tournaments with big associations, those players are getting tons of wild cards anyway. So yeah. if if Murray takes, if Murray is taking a wild card that would be reserved for some French player ranked two hundred, well, they're gonna get a, a wild card in the next event, you know, in in Paris Masters qualifying or the next Roland Garros or the next. So I don't know. I'm, I'm like the same thing was like, people were saying a similar thing with Kim Clasters that she was like her coming back and, you know, some people, some people, she was taking wild cards from them. And I don't know. I just, so what if a player has to actually play a, a, a lower event or play qualifying? I just, I, I, I'm happy to see them taken away from people. If you get what I mean. <laughs> 
<laughs> I get that fully. And I also, I mean, in terms of your wild card things, yes, I think it has to be, I reached a saturation point with Leighton Hewitt because he'd been in that kind of mode of his career for yeah, yeah. You know, five years. And he retired like, like seven times. Oh my gosh, so. yeah. And he keeps coming back. Um, and he's, I guess he got Hall of Fame nominated uh, last week, which he deserves. He should get in the Hall of Fame for yep. sure. Um, but also, I was still wondering, like, I don't think it's going to stop him from taking more doubles wild cards or anything anytime soon. Anyway, what I was thinking about wild cards also, I mean, I kind of feel that way, even about the ones that people think of as being, like, the most controversial, which I guess are some of the ones that go to, like, I remember the one, one recent one is, like, the one for Mario Saka that got a lot of attention in Miami last year when she was, yeah. but she basically got, I mean, because she's Naomi's sister was the, was 99% of the reason. However... Like, I wrote a story about her playing that tournament, that match, you know, because it was an interesting attraction having the world number one sister play in the tournament. I know the Miami Herald did the same. It got a bunch of coverage. And to the extent that while the tournaments just want to get attention for themselves or gather interest in the tournament, that was a very smart choice for a wild card, then putting Mario Saka in that wild card. And she performed very credibly in that match. I think it was like, I don't know, three and four against Whitney Osegue. It was it was a perfectly, she was, she was plenty good and played above her ranking and showed I think some of her sister's pension for being better on big stages and just struggling at smaller events. But yeah, and you know, Sam even goes for whatever uh, Marco Djokovic has gotten wild cards into you know 500 ATP 500 Dubai and things like that. So you know, these things happen in yeah. tennis, and I and I just don't think. And I also love I mentioned this on the draw show we did with Courtney, but I also love that they freed up and didn't give the reciprocal wild cards this year yeah. at the Slams because Absolutely, those suck. Yeah. And so suck badly. Yeah, and so the fact that there wasn't the guaranteed American Aussie wild card, and they can give a discretionary to Andy Murray, I think is fantastic. So happy they gave one to him. Happy they gave one to Parankova, who wouldn't normally get one yeah. of the French Open, probably. Yeah, these are all these are all good things. So, and you know, and he's he's Andy friggin' Murray. He's like everyone loves him. And maybe yeah. and I don't know what he did to piss off Mats Valander, or Mats Valander just being a cranky poo today. But you know, <laughs> this was something that that I just don't think should bother anybody yeah yeah and it, you know it, he lost so what big deal like he got he, sometimes you get beat down sometimes and you're playing stan who's a champion of this event not that long ago and who loves these conditions who's like an ultimate sort of like hard hitter guy who can hit through like slow conditions and generate power and pace so this was a bad matchup for anybody and if, if anything everyone just sort of as we were watching we were saying maybe we just really underestimated how good stan might be right now yeah and Stan Grant did lose last week to Musetti, so we didn't come in with a lot of confidence. But anyway, yeah. But it's just it's just a really bizarre thing to say about someone who has an eight, like who has a title on his ranking, you know, yeah. who won a title in the last fifty-two weeks. So I and again, know, who beats Verev? Yeah, and and who beat Varenka in that that title in Antwerp and beats yeah. Verev? Yes. So it's just yeah, it it doesn't make sense. And also, I mean, as you, I, I, I agreed with what you said. Like, we should probably be more honest about why wild cards are given and it's not just for performance and to help people you know tournaments reserve like the right to have wild cards so you know they can bring people in who help you know who bring attention to the draw whether it's a a local you know a local wild card or a star or whatever and like i don't agree as i said i I, like in a lot of cases i don't i don't care for them but i mean it's andy murray uh, it's 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 not a thing this isn't a thing this isn't a a thing to be arguing so we will leave that match there thoughts on stan i mean stan has a tough draw at this tournament stan next faces dominic kupfer who has played really well lately made quarters in rome and then he could face oj aliasim in the third round and then he could face dominic team fourth round so pretty brutal draw and then and then my kind of low-key pick to 
uh, do really well here, and possibly Diego in the in this in the quarters, or uh, or Malfis. So tough draw for Favrinka. Do you think Favrinka can, in these conditions, can he? Let's just go big. Can he beat uh, Nadal? Yeah. In the bottom half. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's the thing with like Favrinka, and I'm, I'm sure you've talked about it before, is that I mean, obviously, the whole big thing around the Murray Favrinka match was that three years ago they played and had an epic five-setter and they both kind of broke their bodies and it's taken so long to come back. And, you know, while Murray's still coming back, Vavrinka has been very gradually, you know, he returned to the top 20. He seems to be finding his footing. He's made like, you know, he made the Australian Open quarter. I think he made three quarters in the last like 18 months since Roland Garros, US Open, Australian Open. Mm-hmm. So like he's, get, you know, he beat, obviously Djokovic was injured, but he beat Djokovic. And so he's been just building and building. And so, I mean, yes, I think it's realistic to think that he could do something again since he's beating top five players at slams and that kind of thing. So why not? In these And as you said, these conditions, these slow conditions, clearly he likes them and he has the power and the weight of shot to hit through them. The other big British name who went out today, well, quick shout out to Dan Evans, who lost in five wild sets to Kane Shikori, <laughs> despite winning uh, two breadstick sets, loses in five, uh, six, four in the fifth, early, which is match everyone, I think everyone would pick Nishikori in that match. Not not two clay lovers there for sure, but Nishikori, not a surprise winner. But the other one I want to get to is Joanna Kanta who was mm-hmm. on playing simultaneously to the match on Chatria. The match on Chatria went very fast, so they weren't overlapping for that long, actually. But Kanta loses 6-3, 6-3 to Coco Goff. Kanta made the semifinals of the French Open last year, uh, playing her semifinal infamously on court Simone Mathieu in front of <laughs> about 80 people. It was I was there. It was terrible and yep. disgraceful. And yep. Anyway, Kanta gets to keep those points because of the new ranking system, so she keeps the 700 slam points on her ranking, which I'm sure cushions this loss significantly in terms of disappointment and not having a ranking be affected and things like that. But this match was one that Goff seemed pretty in control of, I, I felt like, despite serving wobbles from Coco. How did you how did you see this match? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean I, I think that the conditions definitely suited Goff and you, I mean we were both in Goff's press conference and like I I asked her about, you know, how she approached it because, you know, she she just gave she gave uh, Conta no pace. She yeah. was throwing in slices. She just, you know, we know how quick she is. And she kind of just, she rested on her defense, as she often does, and made her Conta hit through her. She couldn't, and she lost. And so I think that was a really good and smart and great match from Garf, considering, as you said, she's had serving troubles. And she'd come into this, I think she'd lost four of her last five matches. This was kind of like her fir- the first, tr- not troubles, but the first, you know, quote unquote slump in her exactly yeah. string of losses and yeah. difficulties, and they're all to like really good players anyway. But yeah. you know, she's had to deal with that, and she's come out and beaten a top ten seed in in her first Roland Garros. I mean, it so. is crazy. I mean, like the people were disappointed that Coco Golf lost the first round of the U.S. Open to Anastasia Savasova, yeah. who's made like a semifinal and two other quarters in her last like four appearances at that tournament with a top as a ranked ahead of her in a top thirty player. And same thing goes when she lost to Sakari and when she lost yeah. to. Other people, and so the expectations for her are really high. But then again, she does something like this: goes out and beats Kanta in straights, and you're not really surprised either because you know how good she can be. And I think, yeah, what you said about her, the sort of pl- the junk balling she could do today, yeah. like she is such a great c- tactical competitor. Like she yeah. wins ugly a lot, 
uh, which, is, which, which like is most which, of them, actually. Yeah, honestly, which is a really interesting sort of trait for a young player to have, because usually that's something you think of being a veteran kind of thing to do, right? To know how to win when you're not at your best, or to make your opponent not play their best, or whatever it may be yeah. in terms of an ugly win. But Coco has that kind of competitive spirit and gift that she's such a good brawler. Yes, there are times, and certainly as she develops as a player, where you would like to see her step out and blow people off the court once she gets to be, you know, a higher ranked player and playing players who are not playing down to people's level, let's say, but, you know, take care of business straightforward. But for this point, like, yeah, being able to go out there and to play sort of your plan C, your plan D game to beat a semifinalist and a player of contest caliber uh, yeah. is super, super impressive. Because as she, as she said, like, um, she, she was hitting four and slices in the match. And she said that she it wasn't really her plan, but she saw that Conto didn't like it, so she did it. And yeah. that's the kind of like news and just intelligence that it's not it not everyone has. And no. actually, I, I really I, I I think it's it amuses me a lot because obviously her big breakthrough was against Venus, and there's all those comparisons that people make because of that, because Coco causes the Williams sisters her idols, and also because she's black, let's be real. Sure. And 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 so it's funny how different like she is to them as a tennis player and how kind of that she's like doubling golf is doubling down on that kind of style and very happy to you know explore how she can trouble opponents and make their life hell rather than just blasting through them so, so yeah i don't know i think it's cool to just see how she's developing as her, herself and not trying to be anyone else I think Courtney, I mean, <laughs> being herself, but Courtney did make a comparison to her in the last, in the draw show, I think, a little bit to Sloane Stevens. And just yeah. that she can play very different gears. But I think that Coco is a more overt competitor than, oh, yeah. than yeah. Sloane and just, and just more clearly relishes the fight and the problem solving. Whereas Sloane can sort of seem to kind of drift more languidly in and out of, of gears. Yeah. And yeah, so. Um, yeah. yeah, golf is super impressive. Here's a couple clips on uh, Coco Golf about winning matches and being 16. Coco, congratulations. Thanks. I'm wondering for you, you've obviously been on tour a little more than a year now, obviously been an unusual year, but is it, do you still surprise yourself being 16, beating last year's semifinalists in straight sets? Is that still something that you kind of go, whoa, that's a pretty big deal? Or is, are you kind of getting used to this whole winning matches at slams thing by now? I mean, I really didn't. I really didn't know, wasn't really thinking about that on the court, but I mean, every match is like a great win. I don't want, I don't really take anything for granted because uh, I'm just happy to be playing. So I don't think maybe winning slams, matches at slams is something I'm used to, especially this is my first main draw rolling girls. But when I'm on the court, I guess I can act like I'm used to it. But when I'm off the court, I'm still just really happy to be here. Um, honestly, my dad told me something in the warm up. He was just uh, telling me, he was just like, uh, you're living your dream. So just enjoy and have fun. I mean, his goal was to become an NBA player and he didn't make it. So he told me like, you're living your dream and not everybody gets to do that. So just have fun on the court. And that really changed my perspective because I was really nervous going into the match and that kind of calmed me down. And I just realized like, it's just a tennis match and I'm doing like some things that people wish that they, they can do. So I, I just... Just go out there and enjoy it. Those are the clips from golf. I have to say, I knew we were going to talk about this match. I wanted to go to Conta's press anyway. The As a member of the British press, put on your, no, no, it's not part of your title of, of being the NCR Spain and South Saharan Africa correspondent. <laughs> but what 
what what do you make of the dynamic between between Joe Conta and the the British press? Because it strikes me as being just such uh, <laughs> so excruciating for everyone involved. <laughs> she, she it was funny. She was she was. Uh, I don't know if you you saw um transcript, but in the, oh, the press, press before, yeah, you got, she got asked about it. Yeah, <laughs> she was asked about like a few things, and one of them was whether she had a love hate relationship with the British press, and she was just like. Well, we're stuck with each other, so... Um, yeah, it's... I mean, it's tough, because... Like, I, I, I get, you know... As as journalists in general, it's great when an, an athlete is open and honest and, like, specific as well about certain things, whether it's what they were doing in the match, like, what went wrong, whether they played... Ba- you know, whether they played badly or well, and Conta can, like... I don't know, she... she you know, we, she has her kind of approach and her you know, the way she, I don't know, her mentality and she kind of projects that. Well, were you going to say something? Well, no, I was just going to say there's this running theme in her press conference, and I'm going to tee up a clip here of basically the one of the most tense exchange today and where the British press always wants her, admit, wants her to admit that she's done something bad or wrong and she refuses or she yeah. does not give them what they're looking for. And it's this constant, they want her to say a certain line in the script and she refuses to say that yeah. line and whether or not it's, the line is true or not. So here's today's version of it. Neil McLeban, your question. Yeah, hi, Joe. You were so consistent in the slams last year, and obviously this, this is been a, a crazy year for everybody, but how would you sum up your Grand Slam record this year? Well, I lost sec- first round of the Australian, second round of the US, and first round of the French. So that's kind of how that went. <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, is there any explanation for that? Do you think you've lost three times to players outside the top 50 in those three matches? Do you think there's any particular concern for you there? No. So, is this is what we should expect, or...? Um, I'd like to think not. I'm doing my best to do better, but that's just the way it happened this year. OK. Stuart? Um, George, just... Sort of on the theme of, of your results at Grand Slams this year, I mean, Dan Evans was in earlier and he was very open in saying that, yeah, his results were pretty poor, to be honest. It's just, seems you take a very different approach. I wondered, maybe you're not going to tell us, but privately, are, would you be disappointed with maybe your performances at major tournaments this year? I mean, I come to the tournaments to do well. Um, to go deep into second week to to hopefully one day win one. That's that's why I show up to every tournament that I play. So um, I don't think um, any player, including myself, will sit here after a, an early round loss, uh, early round loss, and and be pleased with the results. So no, I'm not. I'm not pleased. I would like to do better, but I'm I'm not exactly going to hate myself. <laughs> and we obviously saw this last year at Wimbledon with Conte too. There was a famously tense exchange yeah. with her and a reporter there. This is it's obviously and it's very different from the way that Andy has developed talking to the press too. And obviously Andy's ability to deal with the press as well as he has uh, is notable and he's an outlier probably in British sports. I mean I'm, what what do you think as someone who knows this landscape better than I do? Sometimes you want athletes to be kind of concrete and you they don't have to like we're not entitled to that, you know. If she, yeah. if she doesn't want to say it then you know, so be it. With with Andy, I think it's. I mean, I think it's still. That's not always perfect, and you know, it can be tense with him. And 
you know, he's, I think in general, Andy is just more kind of, I don't know, like if you ask him a question, he'll think about it and he'll answer it how he feels, you know, just what he yeah. thinks. And, and with with Conta, because I imagine because she feels she's been burned in the past as well, like, you know, she doesn't, she has kind of a more, a wall of armor, I guess, yeah. if you, if you go, know I mean, and so that, that, that's kind of a different thing, but I still, I don't know. I, I still think, yeah, uh. Yeah, but I think I think Andy's tough. I think Andy's a more rare athlete than that. And I put Andy in a kind of similar category to like an Osaka, Naomi Osaka, yeah, yeah, who, yeah. who is can be bluntly honest and really does seem to listen to questions and think about them and give answers compared to gosh, a lot of players I can name in the other category. Your Kantas, even probably more your Serena's, even more your um I don't know who else, you know, lots of players who could fit in there sort of who think who give answers that are more about keeping up their own sort of narrative or trying to keep things on their yeah. terms, right? Trying to yeah, keep yeah. their sense of control yeah. over how they're talked about and how they talk about themselves and everything. Yeah, because like with Conta, one of the things is, is like if you ask her a question and she, she'll like disagree with the premise of the question, even if like two seconds later, she's basically kind of saying exactly what you asked, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, again, it's it's the whole kind of control thing and that, that can be, definitely that can be frustrating and, I don't know, it's, but again, you know, so it's frustrating, but at the same time, like, I mean, it's what she, you know, it's it's her press conference, she can, yeah. she's more than entitled to do it, you know? Do you think, last sort of thing on this, I think, for me, at least, let's see if more, do you think that this sort of, that tension, is it all part of her tenseness and nerves at slams? Do you think there, maybe it's just her personality, maybe there's no way of changing it, maybe it's how she can do best, but we have seen her you know, make a lot of deep runs at slams, let's say, without making a final. Um, yeah. Or when she has probably, after having a career that no one thought would be as good as it was for a long time, to be clear, yeah. she really elevated her career. But since then, she's kind of hit a little bit of a ceiling, results-wise. Um, do you think that a more sort of open wall Uninhibit- approach, Uninhibited, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uninhibited approach could, could, could sort of lead to flow. It could get messy in ways we don't know. <laughs> if we don't know what's behind the floodgates, really. But yeah. yeah, it's just it. I'm and and also we have seen Joe have lots of sort of nerves incidents on courts. So. Yeah, I mean, I think partly on one hand, I think it's also just. I, I mean, I don't know her, but I, I'd imagine it's partly her personality. Like, or I, I don't know. If, I mean, I'm. You may have seen it, but in the Battle of the Brits, when you know there was a the whole thing where you know if, I don't know how much you watched of it, but by the end of kind of that whole week of the team competition of British players, all of uh-huh. them, you know, everyone was kind of, everyone had bought into it, aside from Conta, like, she was just, she had gone about her business, mm. and then by the end of the tournament, they'd, they'd bought a cardboard cutout of Conta and were, like, joking about it, and it got quite, I think she wasn't very, like, happy about it, and, like, Liam Brody was asked about it this week, and he was like, oh, I'm, I'm probably gonna have to, like, say a few words and not apologise, but, like, just make sure everything's cool and that kind of thing. So, so I think she's mm. quite... A, a bit of a loner in a way and just like she she so it's not natural for her to just share but at yeah. the same time I also think she's um it's also just how she's been told to you know she if she projects this her mentality and how she feels she should act then that's how it will replicate onto the court and I mean like fair play like she's a she's been in the top five she's reached some semi-finals yeah clearly it's worked so I, I, I don't know if I, I wouldn't know if she somehow more un- uninhibited that suddenly it's ever the you know 
the ceiling's gonna break. I, I, I'm not sure. No, I just I don't know. It's it's hard. It's one of those things where it's you know like talking about any top successful athlete, like you you can only critique so much because they're obviously doing very very well yeah. for themselves. Could they do better? Sure, but like, are they doing better than yeah. almost everybody else? Yes, definitely. So uh, that's tricky. And that, that's that's kind of that's kind of the tension with Conto as well because. The, you know, the, these things were happening in after, you know, she'd reached the semifinals of the French Open, which no one thought she was going to do. No. And she, like, she she re- like she really could have won that slam last year. Oh, yeah. She was, had such a good shot. That's where the tension comes. Or, again, Wimbledon, which, I mean, that was a bit different. I, I feel like the fact that she'd reached a quarterfinal maybe was lost a bit. But, like, again, <laughs> you know, that, yeah, it's, you know, she's doing great. Well, she was doing great last year anyway. So that's another layer of the tension, yes. So that's the main two marquee matches we want to talk about today on day one. Any other impressions from what it's like covering this French Open? We're both covering this remotely from home. You're at least in a more friendly time zone this time, which I'm this not. Time, yeah. I had to wake up at 5 a.m. today. Which I'm sure was horrible for you. That's uh, so not sorry. how I roll. I see yeah. someone who, you've seen me sleep. Yes. So you know how that works. <laughs> yes. Any, any thoughts on this tournament and what it's like watching a, a cold slam where no one looks happy? It's It's very strange. It's... I mean, obviously, the first thing that happened was half an hour into it, Victoria Azarenka and and her opponent Kovinic were marching off the court after the opponent slipped, and then everyone was cold and it was rainy and I don't know, it's 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 just weird, yeah. The thing that struck out was just the fact that we got to set seven p.m. and we weren't thinking about the light. That was really that strange was big. To me. That's big. <laughs> yeah. That is a big change having the lights. That's that's an overdue sort of thing. For sure. I think it was, I want to say it was Shardy who was asked about this. I'm not sure where I would have seen this, but he said that this slam, or this year, and this slam especially, maybe this wasn't him, somebody somebody French, I believe it was Shardy, said that it's starting to feel much more like a job now than like, than playing a game and like he, going he said that, he said about, that this, about this tournament. Or I think he said yeah. it around, around this time anyway, right? Like, you're really having to suck a lot up. Right, you're yeah. not like going out there and delighting the French fans, having all your friends from around Paris come and see you, and da 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 da. da. You are like grinding, being stuck at a hotel, even if you have an apartment or something, you know, <laughs> near Roland Garros, which a lot of French players do. All the creature comforts are sort of gone, and you're sort of just having to take more of this. And a lot of people can say, you know, oh poor little rich boys, blah blah, blah whatever girls, whoever is complaining about different conditions, and that's another thing that Philander said complaining about uh, Azarenka today, but. I I sympathize with that. This it does, especially coming so soon after the last slam, it does and being the conditions being awful and the players being dressed, you know, like they're going on some sort of tundra dig. Like for <laughs> you know, it just doesn't feel like recreational. It just feels yeah. like it feels comp- which is which is just not not very tennis, this feel. Yeah. I think one of I think one on that subject the quote from David Goffin, which you can put in the audio. Here. <laughs> I might have it. Let's see. Can I ask one other question? When you look at all of twenty twenty, what has been the most difficult thing for you this year? For me, it's the the motivation. I would say because you, it's uh, you feel like kind of worried all the time you know it's uh, before uh, every tournament you know you don't know uh, if, you, if there will be like a f- f- 
wrong test or you will be positive, negative, and uh, it's the same for your staff. Every week it's different rules. Every city it's different. How to travel with the staff and uh, and also in your your private life also it can be just uh, not easy. So um, so the most difficult for me it's like to stay uh, to be to be like fresh mentally on the court and to save energy to to give everything on the court that's why i think uh, today it was the the toughest part it's just that i was a little bit empty and uh, and no no energy today he he just you know he lo- he lost badly to Yannick Sinner today yeah. and like there was a stretch in the middle of the match where he lost 11 straight games it was horrible and afterwards he was just like he was asked like what's the toughest thing about this year and he said it's just been motivation you know the anxiety about you know having to not knowing if you're going to be positive or negative yeah. all of the different rule changes i think i certainly i was thinking about it what what this would do to the men- mental health not not anything drastic just like what does these kind of these regulations and stuff how does this affect players and certainly both as players and I mean even as a journalist like covering this at home just sitting in my room all day it's 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 a grind right yeah. <laughs> as, as I mean as you just said like getting up at 5 a.m like it's it's very much a grind and and two weeks after the US Open it's yeah <laughs> it it's a lot no, I mean, like, because normally, I mean, our jobs aren't particularly well paid or anything uh, ever uh, being journalists, mm-hmm. sports journalists. But at least normally the, you know, the perk of it is the sort of the the travel and getting to be there and experience these things. So when you take away that part of it, yeah, the mental health side, the equation gets rougher. And, and actually, Carlos Moya talked about this in an interview, uh, I think with ATP, I believe, in Spanish, at least that uh, Rafa Plaza was tweeting and basically translation of it saying, the most important thing they focused on with Rafa was more than his fitness was or his tennis was his head and just getting his head sort of ready. And they were very much listening to his, you know, if he wasn't feeling up for doing something, at least especially in the early months when there was no return date, they were not pushing things. They were being mm. like, okay, sure. Um, giving his, you know, he, and here's what he says. He says, someday we gave priority to his head to play when he was feeling comfortable. Some days we were playing five minutes, other for an hour, others for oh, nothing. Wow. Yeah. So that... That was the priority at the beginning when we didn't have a clear date to come back. As soon as we had a return date, we demanded more and a plan to follow. And when he's had a date to play, he's arrived to that well um, with doubts, but but well. And yeah, so I mean, like that's and Rafa's been open about that too. Rafa and Nadal been open yeah. about that as well, saying that you know these are tough times. And yeah, and, and that's again, I'm just and with Murray and with everybody like in Kanta, like I'm just you know. I'm really trying not to rip any sort of player for going out there and laying yeah. whatever kind of egg. If 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 Debbie Goffin goes out there and loses eleven straight games to Yannick Sinner, um, so, be it, yeah. so be it. Like that's really only hurts him. Like and, yeah. or if or if you are an angry better or something who, yeah. who lost my name. That's that's on you. We're trying to bet on pandemic tennis. So yeah. anyway, Tumani, thank you for coming on here. Any other last thoughts before I uh, let you go? Mm, no, we'll. we'll... We'll see if we have a Brit in the second round tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, we have two. It's like Cam Norrie and uh, tennis Twitter fave Liam Brody both taking court tomorrow. Yeah. And we will see them, one of them there. Maybe they both have pretty good draws, actually. I mean, yeah. if we're going to break down the British draws, we'll yeah. do that. Cam Norrie yeah. plays uh, Daniel Alahi Galan, a what lucky loser. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Daniel Alahi Galan, fun fact on him, like a lucky loser at the French Open. 
uh, Alahi Galan, uh, tri- or Daniel, I, forget, I don't know how his name divides Galan, up into Galan. first. Yeah, Galan. Galan um, tried to sign. Remember that day, the Trungaliti day, when Trungaliti drove yeah. back uh, to get the Lucky Loser spot at the French Open? Oh. Apparently, Alahi Galan had tried that morning to get in to sign in for Lucky Loser, but he's like, they wouldn't take his credential. He's still a qualifying credential and they wouldn't let him in. But he had tried to oh. get into the tournament office that day to sign in. He <laughs> would have gotten it because he yeah. was there and was actually trying, but he couldn't get in. That's what. Um, Robert Farah told me that back then. <laughs> That's another Colombian. Um, yeah, so Nori versus Galan and Liam Brody versus Yuri Vesely are the British matches. And Timani, thank you as always. And thank you. Let me just do our little Patreon thanks here as well. Thank you to our Patreon Slam Chat backers for supporting us as well. We thank them every episode. Liz Kennel, Jonathan Weinbaum, Mary Carrillo, Leo Williams, Chuang Nguyen, Betty, Audrey Wellens, Sean Mulroy, Joseph Har, Susanna W., and Antonio Maycumber, and our four... Now, Goat Backers, Mike, J-O-D, Charles, Cena, and Christopher Bishop. If you want to join them supporting NCR on Patreon as we do daily shows during the French Open, we would love to have you there as well. We are at patreon.com slash no challenges remaining. And we have one new Patreon backer to thank uh, since the last episode, Harumi Ikeda. So thank you to Harumi for joining there. Again, patreon.com slash no challenges remaining. And follow Tumani, our Spain and Sub-Saharan Africa <laughs> correspondent. Uh, he's at Tum Carriol on Twitter. Follow him stuff on The Guardian as well. I think you read about golf and uh, content today, right? Yeah. Just a short story. Nothing special. It's always special when you're on. I'm sure it'll be great. All right. Thanks, Tumani. Appreciate it. And though I'm grateful to be able to bestow upon Tumani the title of NCR Spain and Sub-Saharan Africa correspondent, it's probably after all he's done for us. Too little, too late. Hey, yeah. It's just too little, too late.